especially in the, in the sci-fi situation where, you know, the people who are your audience are going to be, you know, very nerds. able to, yeah. yeah. Such, nerds. they're not just going to be nerds. They're going to be such nerds. Well, <laughs> cer- certain ones, some people just read it and put the book down. Those are just regular boilerplate nodes. Some people read it and then talk about and it. And then talk about it. <laughs> Those are the such nerds. It's a different strata of nerd. You know? Hey, that's the name of the podcast. Just, uh, yes. Some nerds are more nerdy than others, I guess you might say. Okay, so welcome. This is our season finale episode covering the entirety of Isaac Asimov's Foundation. Uh, and with us today are a few guests. Brent, do you want to start us off? Sure. So my name is Brent. I uh, have been a science fiction buff since I was in junior high and uh, devoured a lot of the classic age of science fiction writers, including Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke and Heinlein and and all those guys. I also happen to have an English degree, so I have an old dusty bag of tricks for thinking about and analyzing literature. So I'll try and uh, figure out how to use some of that to contribute to the discussion. Awesome. Thank you, Brent. Dan? Hi, this is Dan. I'm coming to you live from Los Angeles, California. Jason and I have been friends for many years uh, and uh, went to nerd college together. I'm reading along with, to the book uh, in the background, listening to uh, the show, and I'm uh, happy to be a part of it. Thanks, Dan. We're happy to have you. And uh, Peter, who? I know our listeners know you, but go ahead and give your uh, give your shout. Hey, guys, I'm back. It's Peter, your favorite host who says the most important things. I'll be uh, glad to have our two guests maybe show me up today because I know Jason won't. Thanks for that, Peter. I'm Jason and this is the Such Nerds podcast. So what we'd like to do today is just start with a brief overview of what we've covered. For those who are, are coming in fresh, just a quick review. We've read the Isaac Asimov uh, Foundation novel, which is really the first published uh book within his series. It was published in 1951 and written mostly during the 40s. So uh, to give us a little context of the era uh, that he wrote that in and what was going on at the time. Um, We've proceeded to read the entire book through our first season, starting with Harry Seldon, pivotal character, setting up the foundation and kind of the future of the the galaxy, if you will, by establishing his uh, colony of encyclopedists on Terminus. That uh, that group of people forming a basis of kind of a, an independent start to a new galactic empire. Um, proceeded through a little bit of uh, maturation of that group of people into forming their own society, developing their own uh, government, interacting with local sovereignties, 
and dealing with territorial disputes and power plays, the introduction of a very unique religion, passing through several uh, learning phases of their development and expanding into interplanetary web of trade to establish their dominance and maintain their uh, dominance, I should say. And culminating with a section of the book called The Merchant Princes, settling down on a, I'll say, a more mature society than what they started with, where uh, a senior trader uh, establishes himself as the um, mayor, uh, but is really uh, kind of in a position more of a prince or, I'll say, authoritarian figure in the, in the foundation society. So as we proceeded through that entire book, we had uh, various conversations about um, the key topics that we, that we thought were pertinent, some interesting things along the way. And uh, I think what we'd like to do today is actually explore at a little bit, maybe higher level of abstraction, some things about the book in its entirety and how it fits into you know, the overall sci-fi genre of the time and why has it lasted as long as it has and people are still enjoying and reading it today to uh, get things started i'd like to prime us with a few icebreaker questions if that's okay sounds like a great idea so the first question is and i'll give this one to brent first because i think you're probably the first one to have done this but the question is why did you read the book I would have read it in probably the early to mid 70s. And so I was, you know, junior high age. You know, it's a long time to recall, you know, a specific recommendation. But at that time, I was just going through all of the classic science fiction out there. There just wasn't a lot of ways to get your inner geek on if you were scientifically inclined. And really, almost the only outlet was science fiction and dreaming about stuff. Really, if you were an up and coming geek, Science fiction was the only way to kind of hang out and fester and, and develop a, your nerdy impulses. So I basically, you know, was in the library uh, in my in my town every afternoon after school, and I was just probably knocking off three or four sci-fi novels a week at, at the very least. So it was inevitable that I was going to get sucked into uh, Asimov, and it was very clear even with my, you know, 12 year old mind of the time that this was a significant book, that this was different and that it was really a classic. That's interesting. Yeah. I think, uh, to put that in perspective, uh, nobody else on the, on the podcast was born when you read this book for the first time. Um, so it's I'll amazing. Just, I'll, just, I'll just take that as a factual <laughs> statement and I won't get depressed about it. <laughs> That's all it is. That's all we're here to talk about scientific fact, right? <laughs> um, yeah. So I think, I mean, that's a, a testament to, you know, the fact that this is still something interesting and Apple's like ready to, you know, release their, what are they called? A mini series interpretation of the, of the novels. Um, still today it's, uh, it's powerful. Yeah. They're actually, by the way, saying that they are there, they've got story arcs outlined for up to eight seasons of 10 hours a piece. Wow. So they're, they're really, you know, if they, they're if they're pulling the, they're pulling in the audience, they're geared up for the long haul. This is going to be their game of Thrones attempt. <laughs> Could very Pretty well much. be. 
<laughs> so Dan, same question for you. Why did you read the book? Not not to uh, not to mimic some of your other co-hosts, but it's not because Jason told me to. It's because Jason told me he was reading it, and uh, you know I was I thought it'd be worthwhile to read along. I was in between sci-fi books at the at the time, and I'd seen advertisements for the TV show, and I was like, oh well, it's, you know I'd heard good things about the series. You know it seemed like a good time to uh, to cue into it. You know, it's a very good book, so I kind of continued with it, and I listened to some of the other episodes of the podcast that really helped out as a as an add add on uh, to understand everything that's going on. You know, it's a it's a full immersive experience. You got you got your book, you got your read read and listen along, and um, polished through the first book and and ready to start the second. Would you say it was almost like you were having a conversation with us as you read the book, like it was that good? It's nearly the book or the podcast. Podcast. Yes. <laughs> I, I felt like you and I were 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 smoking long cigars together discussing um, discussing Be- all the important <laughs> science fictions. You got that awesome. super sweet vegan tobacco. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty vegan, much. V- vegan from the book, as yeah. in Star Vega, or vegan as oh, in did, people did who don't eat don't eat meat. I see. I was thinking it was like a meat thing. <laughs> Yeah, we were hooked on the vegan as a dietary regime um, thing. The vegan yeah. tobacco. They keep saying vegan tobacco. I don't know if it's yeah. or Vega. Yeah, well, there's, a, there's a star nearby uh, us that's called Vega. And uh, mm. um, so I, I don't think veganism uh, had been invented when these books were laid down. First mystery solved. Yeah, you thought you were just very prescient. 70 years in advance knowing about (laughs) dietary preferences um turns out it was just coincidence peter had us trying to figure out what the heck carnivorous tobacco would be like it would be way better (laughs) yeah it was it was smell of bacon right right Right. it would still make life worth living as opposed to the vegan tobacco yes so peter i'm sure that uh listeners to the early pods uh know why you read the book but do you want to just give a quick uh a quick rehash there for anybody who might be coming in just for the book summary jason locked me up in his basement and wouldn't let me out until i read it (laughs) the story gets more severe every time you tell it (laughs) uh no we we had talked we talked about reading it a while ago and um we were working through i don't know we were working through something similar together dune we were reading dune and uh, then it was like, hey, have you ever read the the um, Isaac Asimov stuff? I almost called him Asimov again. <laughs> and the answer was no. So then Jason was brainstorming about this podcast like months and months, possibly even years before we actually did it's it. It's hardly years. It was a couple of months. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I don't know. Time has ceased to have meaning for me. So I know. I know. It's, it's hard for me to recollect exactly when it was. I, it's still 2020, right? Yeah. Is it 2020 already? Is it now 2020? And yeah. Now and forever. Right? Now and forever. I can't wait for lockdown to stop. Jason, why did you, Jason, why did you read the book? I read the book because it, it, one of my very particularly handsome co-hosts had recommended it. The handsomest. And, uh, I had confessed my love of Dune to um, to Brent as one of my preferred sci-fi, you know, 
journeys in my life. Not, not that I've had that many, but that was a big one and, uh, sticks out for me. But, um, Brent immediately recommended the foundation series. And I think it took two or three times for you to reiterate that Brent before it really stuck in what you were talking about. And I figured out, you know, what this thing is and who the heck Isaac Asimov is and, come to find out he's like this huge, you know, he had his own magazine publication named after him. He's like a huge force in the, in the early or the mid, you know, 20th century sci-fi genre uh, and beyond. He's one of the pioneers. And so, yeah. So after I looked into it a little bit and realized how many books it was, I thought there's no way I can do something like Dune again all by myself. Like I need to be able to talk to people about what's going on here because it's, you know, can get pretty exciting. So yeah, I was really glad that uh, that Peter and Russ agreed to start the podcast with me, and uh, you know we're we're evolving the cast. For those that don't know, Dan will be joining us for season two, so um, it's evolving and growing, and uh, and it's been really fun. So speak for yourself, Jason. Oh, okay, sorry, Peter. Yeah, I know you're coerced into uh, <laughs> participating. So Peter and I <laughs> always talk about sci-fi. By the way, like. There's not a conversation that I have with Peter that I can remember not bringing up some kind of sci-fi story or, you know, recommended uh, sci-fi movie or something like that or series. So, yeah, it's it kind of in keeping with our general rapport. How are the kids? Oh, who cares? Let's talk about <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> Bingo. <laughs> so, um, so thank you for answering the why you read the book and also when you read the book. You know, we discussed early in the podcast kind of who we thought each of our co-hosts were like in the book. And just, uh, I know Brent, maybe a little memory jog will be helpful, but, um, if you think back when you read the book, did you associate yourself with any particular character in the book? I don't think I did. It's kind of in the tradition of a real literary epic, right? That you're thinking about, the story um, that, you know, just sort of transcends an individual lifetime. It's a lot like the Odyssey. If you read any of the ancient, you know, classic literary epics, the Iliad or the Odyssey, it's not about identifying with one particular person. Thank you for that, Brent. Same thing to you, Dan. I know uh, Peter and I will have to kind of regroup on our original assessments of ourselves here, but did you have any thoughts, you know, especially as you were listening through the podcast? For, for me, reading through the, the, the character I most identified with my day-to-day life was probably Ponyet's pretty short arc, you know, kind of called in doing general business, trying to conduct day-to-day affairs and getting pulled into a kind of ridiculous rescue mission that interferes with his day-to-day, what he's trying to do for no benefit to himself. Um, I find myself doing a lot of that day to day, hit a little bit close to home in terms of him trying to take care of what he's taking care of on a day to day basis. And then having to do this convoluted rescue mission on this far off planet. Meanwhile, he's got all this wares he's trying to actually make a living with. Uh, that one uh, was one that I found myself, you know, identifying with uh, very, very intuitively. Not, not everybody can be Harry Seldon, Jay, you know, <laughs> or, uh, or, uh, or um, Salver Harden. Salver Salver Harden. Harden. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Some of us have to go for the minor characters, you know. Ponyes is he's it, the main character. He's a major section, character. Man. He's a major character. Yeah. He's the he's the hero. He's the driving. And don't forget protagonist. And don't that, forget that about book. my boy Ponyes. 
he escapes from Ascone with ships full of sweet, sweet tin. <laughs> yes, shiploads of tin. Yes. He gets rid of all of those nuclear devices, all of those gadgets and things that you can kludge together to transmute one metal into another metal and do all kinds of force field stuff. Gets rid of all of that junk and brings home that precious tin. Sweet, sweet tin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's going to make lots of bronze, a lot of bronze in, in, in Kanye's future. A lot of, he's got some man. plumbing valves yeah, he's got to construct back I didn't, home. I didn't read ahead, but... <laughs> Don't forget, tin is also very valuable in uh, circuits, right? It's half of solder, and it's what the traces on circuit boards are made out of. Ah, another use of tin that we failed to realize. I say electro electro tin plating. It's it's uh, used um, on a lot of aluminum and copper connectors uh, to uh, prevent corrosion. Um, so it's actually quite useful industrial metal. See that, Peter. So Peter and Russ and I, so Peter is, uh, his profession deals with steel fabrication, like welding large pieces yeah. of steel together. Pipe to plate. Um, mine is largely mechanical in nature. And, uh, and Russ is an environmental engineer and none of us picked up on, although I know soldering in the terms very well, like tinning the tip and, you know. Yeah, obviously tin is a component of solder. I had, we didn't even click on that. See that, Peter? You also need it for that top foil for your leftovers. And exactly. Like that loosely, yes, poorly wrapped foil, top foil. Not made of tin, yes. as has been stated before. I don't yes. still not made know of tin. what you're saying to me right now, but I think that you're lying. <laughs> or we need it uh, We need it for our helmets to uh, avoid, uh, you know, UFO uh, wave right. propagation into our brains. Exactly. Right. The, the government rays from the satellites and the chemtrails. <laughs> I'd, I'd like to welcome back to our periodic table podcast. <laughs> More like boron. Right. <laughs> well, it's good. We brought the, the big guns on to help us, you know, figure out some uh, second mystery solved. It's like two mysteries we solved today. At least it's probably more. That I didn't even realize. Friend, yeah. You should really have him on the podcast sometime. I know. <laughs> so, uh, Peter, with that, looking back at the entire book, I know that you you really had a fondness for Hobar Mallow at the end, and you just wanted <laughs> to be him. But uh, do you still see yourself as Salver Harden, or do you? I, I mean, a... the guy I'd want to be is Jord Farah. He seems like a chill dude. He's got that sweet, sweet vegan tobacco. He's got yeah. that dope pipe that was cool enough that Salver Harden like would smoke it and fondly remember him. So that's who I want to be. Yeah, but I'm probably I'm probably King Leopold. He's kind of a putz, you know, <laughs> very ineffective. So. Better than Weenus. It is better than Weenus. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think uh, I don't think anybody really reminds me of Venus, but um, yeah, and I I can't help but continue to associate myself with uh, with Pyrene. I know he was a very minor character. I'll say the antagonist to our Salvor Harden protagonist, but um, I feel like his personality is is something I have struggled with most of my life. <laughs> fair, fair. Um, um, 
And you, you probably owe Russ an apology because I think you said he was like Weenus at one point. No, you said he was like Weenus. I said, he, <laughs> well, I don't know if mine's better. I said he was like Gal Dornick, and I really meant like in the podcast. So um, I hope that wasn't uh, taken with offense. But Peter, what was your high point of the book? I did like the orchestration of the um, the overthrow, basically the the reveal of the power of the pseudo scientific religious state that took over the various worlds in the four kingdoms. All the lights go out. Everybody panics. There's no food replicators or whatever working. The hospitals are shut down. Transportation's gone. The super dope uh, throne stops hovering. And it's just like the big reveal. It's like, oh, the cards were stacked from the get go. That was the best part. And would you say that in general you don't despair about the idea of Salver Harding using religion to control the masses? No, because it's so effective. <laughs> I'd like to take this opportunity to announce my new uh, my new religion <laughs> called Peterism. I'm not going to elaborate on that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was going to say that could go in a very dangerous direction very quickly. Yes. <laughs> Um, so Dan, do you have any thoughts on, uh, you know, as you were reading, you had kind of a different vantage point. You were not, um, you know, I think you were not listening to the podcast before you read, right? You read first and then listened. No, yeah, I, I didn't start listening until I read, I used it as a read, read along. Um, but yeah, I mean, same question. My, my, I mean, it's kind of the climax of the book, but, but the, the trial of Mallow, I thought was, was probably the high point for me. A kind of a throwback to the the um, Harry Seldon trial. You think he's? It looks like for Mallow, he's set up. He's nailed. They got him dead to rights, and he's going to be, you know, he's going to be off pretty quick. And you think he has no chance, and he kind of has that little aside, you know, when the trial starts. Oh, did you? Do you have it? You know, and you kind of like. I think. Oh, it'll be interesting to see what he has up his sleeve. And I had no idea. You know, the the level of granularity with his. Uh, you know, his presentation and, you know, you had a sense that that the missionary situation was a bit of a a bit of a sham uh, when it happened. But, you know, the way he sort of broke it down and just not only like proved his innocence, but essentially destroyed the opposition, and launched like a giant riot outside of the courthouse, um, you know, and then dropped the mic. And it's like, well, smash cut. Now he's in charge. Um, I thought that really, you know, from the, within a couple pages went from, you know, completely a complete 180 of what the situation was where he was sort of totally screwed. And now he's going to be, you know, he's turned that entirely around uh, and really kind of came out way on top. So I thought that was real, a real uh, you know, high point of the book for me. I'd like to change my answer to the part where he was down to the skin. <laughs> I had a feeling it was either that Peter or when Farrell wrote his hit song happy and, <laughs> and you just couldn't help but dance on down the street and sing along <laughs> so thanks for that dan um and uh so brent open open it up to you if you had to gravitate to kind of the high point of that novel um where would you where would you put it i kind of agree with dan although you know, the trial of Harry Seldon itself was pretty amazing. But I think that the trial, the whole thing about 
the story of Mallow is a much more mature piece of writing. It just has, I, I don't really know how to characterize it, but it just has a voice and a depth to it that is is just much more solid than the earlier books. And I think you just really have to look at the fact that Asimov was maturing as a writer, the fact that he pulls this out, this rabbit out of a hat without being what's called a deus ex machina, you know, the 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 magic mechanism that's unconnected to the story. Uh, which is a very bad thing. You don't want to. You don't want to depend on a Deus ex machina, or the God is in the machine, is the translation from Latin for the term. And so it really feels like Asimov, as a writer, is hitting his stride in that part of the story. Uh, maybe even more so than just the previous one about the traitors with Ponyets and and so forth. Even one book earlier. Yeah, and he. I think at that at that time um, he had established the kind of objective of collecting this stuff into a novel. So maybe his writing objective was different for that section. It was more geared towards pulling everything together to be able to publish it as a book versus the individual stories that he was just, you know, probably excited to get published in, you know, fantastic universe or whatever the, uh, the, the magazine was at the time, right. where he was first publishing. I think it would be interesting to go back and actually look at how the structure of the book evolved from the stories as they were first serialized in the 40s and how they appeared in print as a book uh, to see how much rewriting he did. And I'm not sure uh, it would take a lot of work, I think, because you'd have to track down the original magazines. I'm not sure that the original uh, serialized stories have been reprinted anywhere. Yeah, and I think he rewrote his memoir three times. I wonder if he put as much energy into <laughs> his stories as he did into his own <laughs> life memoir. Well, I think he, I think he was, you know, he'd really become a machine as far as as writing. He was Asimov was actually notorious for uh, writing on a schedule. He, uh, he, he basically he would. Uh, I've read this about him, that he would get dressed in the morning, put on, because people did this in a day, he would put on a suit and a tie, and he would go into his other bedroom, close the door, take off his his coat, hang it on the back of the door, and he would write from 8 to noon. He would come out, have lunch, he would go back in, he would work on, talk to his agent, write letters, and then he would write from like 3 to 5.30, and then he would stop and he would put on his coat, he would walk back as if he almost as if he had a real commute and everything. And so he was, he, he cracked out, I think about 500 published titles in his life. Wow. And, and so he was, a lot of them are nonfiction, uh, like Asimov's guide to mathematics, Asimov's guide to biology, Asimov's guide to the Bible, all these sorts of things. And so he really was able to crank out stuff without a lot of editing and pretty much go straight through later in his career. But I suspect that given the economics, he was in grad school in Boston at the time. Uh, I don't think he had the time or the money to have the luxury of doing a massive gut and rewrite on the, on the story. So I think there was, you know, there was a lot of the, the economics were terrible. If you were writing science fiction for magazines, you were getting paid three cents a word or a nickel a word or something. You weren't making really enough money to live on. You had to 
you had to crank out a lot of product to to earn enough to to survive as a writer in those days. And there were a lot of people trying, so there was com- competition as well. Yeah. Jason, I think I read somewhere that uh, he wrote them in a slightly different order than how they showed up in the books. I think that the Traders actually was written after the Merchant Princess. I could be wrong about that, but I thought I, I saw you, that. You'd, you had mentioned that during uh, during that episode, I think, that you had researched mm-hmm. something that it was uh, written post-Merchant Princess, but po- actually in the book ordered pre-Merchant Princess, which I think chronologically makes sense. Uh, and maybe it was just he was trying to make a few bucks publishing it as a, as an independent story and and then mashed it into the novel for, mm. you know. Yeah, it, lo- it looks like that was uh, Merchant Princess was published in August 44, whereas Traders was published in October 44. Um, so, yeah. And you mentioned about the big and the little before. Mm. Um, I had a question. So, Jason, for you, same question. What do you think the high, the high point? And I have a question too that I think we'll, I'd like to ask everybody yeah, afterwards. Yeah, sure. um, so for me, the high point uh, was when I realized, you know, Asimov was not just making, you know, a fun story to read and you know experience as if you're kind of, you know, there in the in the moment and you're with the characters. It was really kind of a layer of a of abstraction above that. And I think that results a little bit in kind of the coldness of how he treats the characters development themselves. And he's not really adding a lot of emotion. He's kind of observing, um, you know, the societal machinations and things that are happening between groups of people. And I think that the, you know, the psycho history kind of sets the stage for that. But I guess for me, I the thing that I find the most interesting about sci-fi is that it takes you away from kind of the normal human condition and allows you to exercise these kind of philosophical ideas about, you know, and, and psychological ideas about how humans behave and, you know, and how we think and everything. And I saw that he kind of was doing that at the the societal development level, I guess I would call it. So for me, it was really interesting to see him go through kind of the the cycle of using religion to organize society and maintain, you know, um, civilizations inertia towards a higher end. And then it kind of expands into trade relationships and interconnected uh, relationships and contracts and things like that, forming the basis of society's stability. So. I'm uh, really interested to see kind of what the next stages of development are because it seems very rudimentary and you'd think a 50,000 year um, time period to mature from what we have today to the future, they'd be far more mature, but it's almost like they're kind of resetting and going through this process again. So um, maybe it's not a high point, but it's like the high idea of the novel that I started to latch on to. I think, that's that's exactly what makes it this such an enduring series it's not necessarily the quality of the writing which is you know a young writer who would yes turn out to be great but wasn't at the height of his 
prime, you know, prime then, it wasn't the world building and the complex details like Dune, you know, which is which is an epic in a in a very different sort. But it's this notion of psychohistory, which is really wrestling with the question of what is human nature? What is innate to being human? And the fact that Selden is able to come up with a uh, a mathematical expression that's that's statistically highly predictive over large population groups says that there is in fact human nature. And so I think that was uh, something that I discovered when I was in school and my focus in getting an English degree was on the 14th century poetry uh, in, written in Middle English. And what fascinated me as I started to explore that was that a lot of the characters that were described in the poetry that I read were exactly like people today. The same kind of corruption, the same kind of short-sighted self-interest, all of this sort of stuff was visible in the characters that were created and, and that were satirized in the in in the poetry 600 years ago. So there is a there is a sort of basic you know, set of characteristics of humanity. And so the brilliance of the whole series is to say, yes, there is human nature and we can and and appeal to science fiction people because there's a mathematical treatment for human nature. And so you know, I'm in a separate, uh, I'm in a separate book group and we read the Greek classics and yeah, it's uh, a lot of the same echoes, right? <clears throat> You're reading the Iliad and the Odyssey and, you know, you're getting into Plato and whatnot. And it's basic human nature hasn't changed. You know, we're Peter. We're, yeah. You have a another book club. I have another book you're, club. Hold on. You're reading books with other guys. I don't know how to break this to you, Jason, but I've been <laughs> unfaithful in my book reading. With the Greek mythology, it's no wonder he's, he was so yeah, fond uh, of no, it. No wonder in the skin part. There you go. <laughs> Dan, you had a question. I'll, I have more here yeah. that ready to fire, but you want to yeah, go I wanna, ahead. One thing that's come up on, as I read it, that was, you know, you, it, the, you get kind of these, these small nuggets of time, you know, the the Harry Seldon piece and then 50 years go by and it's like you have this situation with these characters and these scenes and then it's just smash cut to 50 years in the future smash cut to you know entirely different sets of characters um entirely different scenes is there any of the sort of you know of the the story arcs that were characters that you found yourself wanting to sort of be fleshed out more before they were moved on from um, in terms of, of uh, either scene or, or a story arc or some character that you thought was interesting that deserved more treatment before they were uh, subsumed by history. Jason, you go first. That's a good question. Actually. Uh, I, you know, my immediate cynical uh, thought as you were saying, the question was like, yeah, all of the characters, because he, he doesn't really flesh out very many characters, right? He really focuses on the the hero of the of the arc for that particular section. You know, we've got Harry Seldon up front, then we've got Her uh, Selver Harden after that, then we've got 
Pagnettes, and then we've got Hobar Mallow, right? And those are really the four characters that he actually fleshes out. I think um, I was holding out hope that there was some reason behind the lack of women when Peter, you know, brought it to the front of our attention uh, during the podcast, that there was some something strategic about that. And that he wasn't just, uh, you know, a 1940s male chauvinist um, and and doing it as subconsciously just because that's what everybody did at the time. Um, I guess I, I would have liked to seen those female characters that were in there rather than, you know, the, the shrew, just being a shrew all the time, really uh, giving them a little bit of story. In, in the process and, and getting to know them better. It just, it did feel, after looking back, very off balance uh, gender-wise. Well, you know, I think it wasn't, I, I don't think you can necessarily uh, associate it with chauvinism. I think it may have been that, uh, like many nerdy types in that day, he may have actually, like, not dated much or really not much known too much about the the female species remember a lot of this was laid down by a 23 year old chemistry grad student and uh, you know i don't think uh uh you know he may have really known how to write women because he hadn't really been around too many so it's a very good it's a very good point if you you say that he didn't have much chemistry with the ladies (laughs) Uh, <laughs> so uh so i think that um Oof. so so without going into anything that remotely resembles a spoiler if you go and look at when he returned to the foundation universe in the 80s uh there are some very strong female characters that are really integral to the story and that are somewhat plausible as women um you know, as female heroines that are, you know, exactly the sort of um, uh, heroine that you want in a in an overall, you know, millennia long epic story. So he does, as a mature writer, come back and have some ability to do this. And I think it's just discomfort to that a lot of writers of action uh, and science fiction have. Right? If you look at the you know, the legendary thriller writer from the 80s and 90s and 2000s, Tom Clancy, who was a meticulous military history buff and researcher, he couldn't write a love scene to save his life. And he tried in a couple of stories, and it was just awful. And and so I think Asimov probably correctly avoided trying to, you know, really, really do that. Um, and even if we jump ahead to... Uh, the uh, the third book, the, the book Second Foundation, um, there is a female character, a couple of female characters, and they really are written by the kind of 50 standards. But he did change over his life to to have like decent female characters that were kind of keeping with, you know, emerging notions of female strength. Did, did you have a character or arc, Brent, that you kind of wanted to see fleshed out a little bit more or aside from all of the above yeah i think the i think the the character the key character is that you know even though the 
psychohistory is the the defining foundation, no pun intended, of the whole series. You don't see there's really not much about Selden. He's really off the stage by the end of the first book. And so, again, um, to, you know, there's no spoiler in saying that a lot of the later 1980s and 1990s material uh, really fleshes out Selden and how did he get to creating psychohistory. And so he has a whole series of adventures in, you know, things that are prequels and that are stitched in between parts of the foundation novels. Uh, he really does have, there's a lot of exposition and, and backstory, but I remember reading this before those were written and, and thinking, you know, why is Selden off the stage by the end of not even act one? Yeah, I would say, I guess uh, probably the, the wasn't super excited to hear more about Gal Dornick. Um, I didn't imagine he would have this awesome arc, but um, yeah, otherwise there's a lot of other characters. What about you, Peter? Is there a, a story or character that you wanted to hear more of? I mean, um, I can't remember his name. The, the, the guy, the the merchant prince at the end of the book four, he seemed uh, he seemed like a good time. Um, uh, not pine Ho yet. Hobar Mallow. Yeah, Mallow. Okay. You know, he's, he's got his like lush villa, and he's like living the high life. He's got his mm -hmm. manservants. You know, he's got his uh, oiled dark skin. Like that dude is living it up. And I'm sure that they, he's got like lots of little fun adventures in there, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. I was thinking, you know, it, it, the, the flip side of that, where at the end he's sort of choosing the, uh, you know, to wear down the, uh, you know, our, uh, our boy, uh, and, oh. uh, and by, by, you know, attrition by just basically starving him and Commodore's wife was, was just brutalizing him you know, when times were good, I can only imagine sort of how that sort of spiraled down as things got worse and worse and, you know, all the washing machines and the other things, he got him stopped working and, and, you know, um, she thought he was a failure to start. I can only imagine sort of how things got, you know, worse from there. I was just going to say, and she told him not to make the deal with Hobar Mallow, right? Like she told him not to do it. So, you know, yeah. There's an oh, I told yeah. you so. Like he's waking oh, yeah. up to it and going to sleep to it. And yeah. you know. <laughs> wait until her daddy hears about this. Yeah, yeah, your father, your father is coming down like a ton of bricks on that guy. Poor Commodore. If only they could spell his name right and add that extra O in there, we'd all be much better off. There's a bad sitcom in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, pretty much it's... like a trope, even though it's written in 1947 or whatever. Clearly, right. kind of well, a trope it's... at the time. More on husband and. Uh... Shrill yeah, wife. a little more on husband, you know, with his nucleics that are broken, buying like the thing that breaks down after two years and giving away all the, all the, you know, the keys to the kingdom for it. Right. You hear the toilet flush. He walks down the stairs. Everybody cheers. Well, <laughs> so I think, uh, you know, the characters are just as wooden and stereotypical as Princess Vespa in Spaceballs. With a giant nucleic. The uh, hair dryer that she totes around. <laughs> it's Her Majesty's royal luggage. Ugh. So, did did we make it through that round? I think so. Okay. All right. So you know, I just want to throw this out there. So Brent, you used the word literary 
epic. What in black space is that? So, you know, the term epic has had a lot of sort of popular connotation. But I think if you go back to classical literature, you know, the ancient Greeks and so forth, like uh, like your book club is uh, studying Peter, epic is a really very particular thing. And it's uh, a narrative uh, and typically over a long period of time that really covers uh, a lot of ground and typically on a large time scale. And it really involves you know, sometimes, you know, these sort of superhuman characters, not like Superman, but, you know, that are able to, that there are forces involved in shaping destiny and history, um, you know, in a way that sort of, you know, creates a, a culture. So, so like, you know, Homer and, and those things really were the encapsulation of what it meant to be uh, an ancient Greek of the time. It Absolutely. was the best of what the culture was about. And so, you have the same thing going on here that really the foundation is a modern, um, you know, epic in terms of its structure. So it has a long period of time. It has this force that essentially represents destiny encoded as mathematics. Psychohistory is a, a prediction based on science, not based on, you know, going up to a mountain and getting a few stone tablets, uh, you know, scrounging up somewhere uh, at the top of a mountain or having the gods come down from Olympus and tell you what your fates are going to be uh, or any of that stuff. It's cold, hard, factual, scientific mathematics that say what the destiny of the human race is going to be. And and so it has all of the elements of a, a classic epic. All of the structural pieces are there. Further, the characters are interesting. You know, Hober Mallow's interesting, but the story's not about him. It's about this onward march of destiny. It's much bigger than Harry Seldon. It's much bigger than than any of these guys. Is that just a long way of saying that this is a lot like the Dune series? It, it is. Yeah, Dune is, is all about, you know, it's destiny and House Atreides goes back to Atreus and Agamemnon and to the dawn of, of human history. It's these like pivotal moments in history, right? It's like this is when all the stars align and this is when history turns towards, you know, some kind of new destination, right? I think then, I think one of the things about, I mean, having read it before, when I went through that series, you know, after the first, you know, the first two books where the original characters kind of, you know, fade out and you're with Paul's kids and then, you know, the God Emperor piece where it's thousands of years in the future, I started to get, oh, well, I'm not going to want to read the next one because I'm attached to these characters because you think of it, most of these stories and their arcs are character driven. But I found as I read through it, look, you, they've introduced new characters and it's thousands of years in the future, but because the writing is good and the narrative sort of continues and it's well thought out, you know, you can really, you know, continue along. And I found the third, fourth, fifth books, you know, still being interesting to me, even though, they were like almost an entirely new cast. And, you know, this kind of in the same, you know, it's almost like he writes it in a way where he doesn't dwell on these characters because they're not the point. You know, you don't want to get too attached to them because it's not about them in particular. But I find myself not disturbed by the fact that these people are coming in and going, coming in and going, you know, because you know that it, this story is bigger than that to a certain extent. I was surprised when um, Salver Harden made it through two, you know, two parts of the book. <laughs> Yeah, he got two uh, Selden reveals, too. He's the only yeah. one, right? I mean, you could say that he's the most important member of the podcast. I mean, yes, part of history. 
<laughs> the 1940s podcast. That, he that definitely says the most important things in the Foundation <laughs> novel. That's for sure. And I mean that in jest, but with all seriousness. If there was Foundation money, his face would be on said money. Probably. I'm sure there's Foundation money. It's it's printed on tin. That's why they keep doing right. it. Right. It's tin coins. Like they talk about it's it in, when Hobar Mal is like, you know, yeah, that, flipping a that, bag of coins on the table or something, right? <laughs> Like, yeah, who carries so coins in space? Can, how can you afford that weight? You haven't figured yeah. out digital credits, you know? So I'm, I'm hoping that we find out what happens with all that tin some point later in the future. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to be uh, real mad when it's tinfoil. <laughs> it's wasted on leftovers for 75 years. Isaac's like a chemistry major. He's still using tin wrong in the context of the book. <laughs> and he's like kicking himself years later, like, ah, oh, I thought that was aluminum. And I said, tin. Rats. <laughs> a moron. I got to rewrite my memoirs from the third time. <laughs> I meant to say titanium, not tin. And Reynolds, the Reynolds company was founded to manufacture tin foil for cigarette packs. So really right up. <laughs> right, the tobacco, vegan tobacco, <laughs> prolific tobacco use, prolific tobacco use. That's what they needed the tin for to wrap all their tobacco yeah, products. All, all their all, vegan tobacco. Yeah, the, you, you, they smash cut to to him, you know, smoking a giant cigar in the in the skin, and uh, they, they they snatched past the part where he unrolled this tremendous foil package that <laughs> was containing it that, with all of this tin hoardings. But all the carnivorous uh, tobacco was going bad, so they needed to get some, some they top foil well. for that stuff. They needed foil. So I I just want to mention you made me think of this, Dan, when you were talking about the uh, you know the nature of the epic um, of uh, getting used to it on Dune, you know, breaking the ice by learning how to evolve through characters to the next characters that come, and uh, what I noticed after reading and I've also been listening to some older sci-fi stories uh, on another podcast that uh, is pretty interesting. Now that I've read the, uh, the foundation book itself and after Peter illuminated the idea of this interregnum between, you know, the period when the empire falls and before a new kind of um, empire is established, there's a lot of this in the air um, during that time, more so than just the topics of like these, you know, types of uh, types of technology and, and fantasies about the use of certain technologies. This idea of like things happening in in an interregnum are things that entire other stories are written on, and it almost seems like a lot of other a lot of authors were kind of riffing on each other's storylines with other sub stories or addendum stories and things like that. And there's a lot of references to things that sound a lot like something in the Isimov, um, and we call him Isimov, by the way. Um, in the Isimov Foundation universe that are happening on some planets, you know, that are not necessarily main storyline referenced in his books, but are believable kind of other locations throughout the galaxy where stuff is happening in that context or in that environment. So it seems like that's also supported kind of this lasting 
um, position of foundation in the the sci-fi pantheon, right? They have their place yeah. in the pantheon because <laughs> they've been come this interconnected web of storylines across all these other sci-fi storylines that uh, ties it all together and carries it forward. So, yeah, and I imagine we'll be seeing some of those pretty soon. Um, I, I my my reading of ahead has been involved as far as reading the cover of the next book, which says foundation and empire and so my guess is that the foreshadowing from Hober Mallow's story being that you know the empire is still floating around out there and there's this whole other backstory that you're talking about a little bit Wait, that's going on that you read ahead i read three <laughs> words ahead yes yeah i think um you know the the empire uh the empire strikes back speaking of borrowing from other science fiction yeah nice poll and for those of you who are just joining us, welcome back to our Star Wars podcast. I was just going to say, like you mentioned in the prior episode about uh, George Lucas um, borrowing some themes. Um, yeah, I mean, the Empire theme is kind of a, you know, it's kind of a broad theme where you have this big, you know, giant organization that, you know, I just I think that the decadence of the Empire in in the Isomoff series here is, is not totally reflected in Star Wars, but you know, it seems like you think, oh, they're decadent, but I think we'll find out they're still, even in their decadence, the fall, like he's saying, will last a long time. There's still you know, elements of it that you're gonna have to be dealing with going forward. You know, I think of the Empire in, in Foundation, it's more like the, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy of just like this bureaucratic sort of sclerotic operation rather than like evil people in these thin two-dimensional character. It's just like this bureaucracy that's sort of grown too big for its own good and just as ineffective and is unable to sort of fulfill its task as a governing entity, uh, more of like a bureaucracy. I, I was going to say, is there any other kind of bureaucracy? I thought that was like, you just define bureaucracy for me. I thought, you know, that's what everybody depends, thought it was. Depends how, how bureaucratic you could possibly be. But yes, I guess if you're trying to govern an entire galaxy, you know, it's like, uh, you know, trying to, trying to work out federal governments that have enough issues, let alone planetary governments, let alone like interstellar governments. Um, right. There's an entire planet that's basically a giant office building. And that's the <laughs> opening much. of the story, right? Yeah. People are literally afraid to go outside. That's how specialized they are. This is in the 40s. It's not like uh, the modern day when, uh, you know, they had tremendous ozone layer back in those days. Yeah, so why be afraid to go outside, you know? So actually sort of that is sort of is a trigger for something I wanted to uh, sort of think about that's really interesting in the books is, you know, so here we are today with the Internet and handheld high powered computational equipment and a reader looking at this book for the first time is like, where are the computers? And and it's really interesting to ponder, you know, and to respect the fact that the story still works even without any computer equipment. And, you know, clearly it was a function of the time it was written. But when you start to dig into Asimov's relationship with computers, things get sort of interesting um, because these books came out in 50, 51, 52. But by 1955, he'd actually written a whole ton of short stories specifically around the potential of computers um, and uh, and in fact, I would highly recommend dredging one up. I don't recall which collection it was in, but the story is called The Last Question. And um, it's an absolutely charming uh, 
story, one that raises a very you know interesting philosophical point, a very fun read. And so Asimov was quickly writing about computers um, and their potential not very long after the foundation. So again, I don't think it's a spoiler to come back and say the later foundation novels from the 80s and beyond actually um, did have computers appropriately as tools. Um, and I think it's also, it's not widely remembered by, by people today, but Asimov actually was uh, a highly visible spokesman for Radio Shack computers in the early 80s. He was in TV ads, uh, print ads. He was, they built, they built an entire marketing campaign around these uh, pre-MS-DOS personal computers uh, around Asimov. And so he was writing on a computer. He was one of the, one of the first sci-fi authors to, to actually write on a computer. So, um, so, so he did get it about computers not long after, um, you know, foundation appeared, but I think it's, he's saved by the fact that the scope of this thing is really, it's epic, right? So it doesn't, doesn't really matter whether computers are there or not. Yeah. It doesn't have to get granular, granular enough to be like, well, how did they do inter, you know, planetary travel? It's like not even addressed really. It's like. Rose got a spaceship and he goes from A to B. You don't find out about the mechanics of how it works or anything like that. Uh -huh. you know? Yeah. They, they kind of brush, you know, everything on, Oh, it's, it's, it's nuclear powered, you know, like, I didn't, like it's, that's, you know, obviously given the time frame in the fifties, you know, the, the, at the dawn of the nuclear age, it's like, Oh, well, everything's nuclear powered, you know, that's just the future. Yeah. And everything will be nuclear powered. But, well, and, and but, at the time that was like a huge, you know, that was a huge, leap from where they were because the oh, the sure. the idea of nuclear power was we can make it we can it's clean cause nuclear energy to be suddenly released in the form of an explosion in a controlled you know or directed explosion <clears throat> that was basically it right this idea of like nuclear power hadn't fully materialized right in the 40s and even the 50s no. i think so the idea of harnessing that for power and then even if the idea of harnessing it at this large scale of like a power plant was being worked through, the idea of then shrinking that down to something that you can hold in your pocket that won't, you know, sterilize you at the same time that it's providing power to your, you know, personal devices it's, it's a huge leap and it's even still a huge leap from today, even though we now have like this idea of battery power and, and all this stuff, all that is kind of almost consumable compared with something like nuclear power. So the real stretch is that some nucleic device has a much, much longer power um, life cycle than a traditional battery or something that needs to burn something or extract energy from other motion in the environment in order to create electricity to to power our devices. Yeah. So like the first nuclear power plant in America was built like in the late 50s at some point, right? So I think it was early enough to where the technology existed and it, but it was not far enough along where they started to realize the actual complications of like scaling something like this and the downsides of it where it was like this sort of unique point in the middle where it was like anything's possible with nuclear power like, you know, before they started to be like, oh, well, hey, you know, you know, 
uh, industrial scale nuclear, you know, has certain drawbacks and there's, there was always trade-offs in energy, but I think it was at a certain point where you could be like, oh, well, yeah, of course, anything could be powerful. Oh, my nuclear powered, uh, you know, riding mower or whatever. Just some, the use cases are not, have not been whittled down enough to say that's stupid and ridiculous, you know. Or watchlets. <laughs> watch, watch, watchlets <laughs> or watchlets either. Both. I nuclear powered time Two sister technology. <laughs> yeah, the uh, that's actually a plot point in the in the traders, right? Or the merchant princess, like dude's got the smallest nucleic that the guards ever seen for the bribes his way it's into one, the factory. It's, <laughs> it's exactly one nucleus. They split like, exactly one atom. One atom big. That's how it's so big it is. <laughs> but yeah, he's so, guarding this gigantic building that's the nucle the, the eternal nuclear power plant that is built for eternity, right? And, you know, our boy shows up and he's like, Hey, look at this thumb size little chain that I can you know, it's thumb size pendant on a chain that I put around my waist and now I'm invincible. It was like yeah, it's like there's... bro shows up at the USB drive. Yeah, and dude's still using punch cards, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah so... there is a kind of a delineation in sci-fi or a, a branching in sci-fi. Uh, at one point, it was really focused on fiction related to the achievements of science, and then there's this kind of branching that happens in, I think, probably mostly in the 40s, 50s, where people start going a little bit beyond that right and they have these kind of magical aspects and it becomes science fantasy right so there's the dune universe and the prescience and all this kind of stuff is really it's not just about thinking what's the next application of technology and kind of looking 30 years into the future it's going like way beyond that looking way out inventing all these kind of random um achievements that are possible over this long time period. And I think uh, it'll be interesting to see if that comes into play with, with this, because it feels very rudimentary human behavior at this point. So will we see some more fantastical or fantasy like um, aspects of the story as we proceed? Well, I mean, ultimately it's like, you know, the, like and Brent's pointing out before, it's there there whatever your time period is or whatever your setting place is, there's still sort of this this sort of you know Homerian epic poem, you know, this sort of these literary archetypes that are sort of you know in play, uh, you know, hero's journey, these various things that uh you know that sort of can be transmuted uh different times and different places that are that are sort of inherent to to a lot of literature that you know and the, this book you know all the other information with regards to the technology or anything else is somewhat incidental because you know the story is is sort of a, a an archetypal uh, type of type of story so you know it's almost like um you'd be able to to sort of tell the story in any time place uh, because you have these sort of humans doing these, these sort of extraordinary things. Would you consider this the, the first space opera or is that the wrong word for it? I, I think that's the wrong word. I think 
you know, if you look at space opera, it would be, um, and actually, which predates Foundation, would be the Lensman and the Skylark series by Doc Smith, which uh, really had its roots in the late 20s, you know. And, and I think one of the things about, you know, space opera is that nobody ever has to go to the bathroom. Spaceships do not have bathrooms on them. Whereas in Foundation... No washlets? Yeah, and yeah. And, and so... Didn't have like, enough tent back then. In, Barbarism. In, they don't go into at length in the Foundation series the how you go to the bathroom on a spaceship. But you know the spaceships have bathrooms. But space opera is so improbably drawn that the ships don't need any bathrooms. The universe is so perfect and so cartoonish that just, you know, it's like a comic book. I'd like to welcome you back to our interstellar restroom podcast. <laughs> <laughs> the future of bathroom technology has come up more than once. So I would like to... Um, I think we've had a lot of good uh, discussion today. Um, I would like to actually wind things down here. Um, I know that Russ is not here to enjoy this, but um, I think there is an award due from the first season. And I would like to, in spirit, Peter, there's no actual trophy or plaque or anything. What? But in spirit, I would like to offer Peter the Praciance Award for season one. Hey, and look the at reason that. for that. I got a clap emoji. And the reason for that is because, you know, I recently, in preparation for today's show, re-listened to all of our episodes. I did accelerate the speed a little bit, so I might have missed a, a little bit of nuance, but I think I mostly got it. And what I took away was the fact that Peter consistently predicted what was going to happen or what was the fallout of what we just read through throughout the entire season. And I think you did it totally subconsciously because (laughs) in the first episode, like one of your standout comments was like, you know, I guess nobody believes in God anymore. And then, like, next <laughs> section, uh, Salver Harden's, like, laying down the biz with this new religion that he's created to fill the void, you know? And then you're like, what, you know, what's he going to do with this, with his nuclear power? Is he going to create some kind of, like, nuclear power arrangement and then sabotage it? I don't know. Like, those are your words. And it's exactly what he did. Like, (laughs) you're just like, this stuff is just rolling off your tongue. And there was other stuff in the end as well. You latched on to Furl and started calling him Farrell. And I was like, I almost dropped the book when I read the, the, I, because I did read a little bit ahead um, in book two. And it's like first pivotal character. First pivotal character, and he's like the progeny of Mallow, and his name is Forel. And I was just like, I couldn't believe it. And like, Peter is bracing There's no question so, in my mind. <laughs> That's when I committed to myself that it, somehow I would, I would get you known for your, your skill, your natural inherent skill. But uh, yeah, I, I can tell that uh, either you are like the resident, you know, it's like second nature for you. Because you've read so much sci-fi, you just kind of like have a feeling for what's going to happen next, or like you are truly dabbling in the spice. <laughs> I, I think, 
I think anyone who's listened to all the podcasts would would concur that that Peter needed that boost of self esteem, uh, and I think that's very nice of you, Jason, to uh, to pump him up because uh, <laughs> he's concerned about where he thought he stood amongst podcast hosts, and now he's truly proven elevated, to be the most important person. I, I went from I went from just emperor of the universe to god emperor of the universe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everybody, everybody knows how that ended for that guy. Just, just, just to remind you, <laughs> it wasn't pretty, and I think it hurt a lot. Yeah, he's yeah, his Peter's getting outfitted for a cart tomorrow, so I don't <laughs> <laughs> Spoilers, guys. Well, thank you for that, Jason. I have to keep working on my superhuman statistical analysis. That is psychohistory. Stage stage five guild navigator, Peter. Fantastic. Just keep bringing that sweet, sweet spice for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so we're kind of, you know, at the end of the book, we've, we've now gone through the whole book in its entirety. We've gotten some, you know, neutral third parties to join in and make sure that we're at least steering somewhat in the right direction through book one. And uh, Jason, Jason, I feel like we've missed some important stuff, though. Uh oh, what did we miss? What right did here? you think of the book, Jason? <laughs> <laughs> I thought we indirectly covered that mostly. All right, I'll. Uh, okay, you want me to go first? Sure. I called right. you out. I. On second thought, Dan, I want to hear what you have to say instead. <laughs> I'd give it two thumbs up. Out of how many thumbs? I, I, I don't want to answer that question. <laughs> nearly two thumbs up out of nearly three thumbs. Fantastic. Um, I would say as a book in general, um, it might be hard sell for some people who are not into sci-fi to like use this as their gateway into reading sci-fi. But as a sci-fi novel, I thought it was great. I would recommend it to anybody who's interested in the genre. And uh, I, it read super fast for me. And yeah, I'd give it two thumbs up. Good stuff. What do you think, Brent? I know you're, this is old hat to you. You know, it is a classic that deserves, you know, the reception that it's had. You know, it's been in print and continuously read for 70 years. The writing is somewhat patchy and uneven and Asimov hasn't really found his groove. I think the the next two books in the series are better written and, you know, it's much less of a patchwork. They really, you know, carry the story forward quite powerfully. You can see that, you know, his progress over the decade of the 50s um, with some of the other stuff that he does, um, it's really a, a pretty remarkable body of work that he assembles in just the next few years. I would have to agree on a lot of those parts. Like there's obviously a, a reason it's endured and uh, it's, it is, you know, a cornerstone of modern sci-fi, whether you enjoyed it or not. Um, I felt like it's serial nature showed, you know, it was very kind of, you know, stop and go. There's like lots of kind of stalling parts and, 
he's having to perpetually have to remake this world between these gaps, especially when uh, basically Harden has to like they kind of reset everything up, set the stage for Harden's revolution, right? Um, that is a little bit drawn out, in my opinion. Like the first couple, I guess, chapters are slow. Um, and then it all comes together at the end. Um, and it's it's tough to get your bearings with the new characters every time. But again, in the scale of the larger story, it's okay because that's not really the point. It's not a character-driven story. You see his potential as a writer in the in the book itself, right? I would agree with Brent that you know it's obviously not like a the same writing of a fully developed writer. And that said, there's an unpolished nature to the work itself. I don't regret reading it, right? I sounds like a rave review to me, Peter. It's worth reading. See, I have hope for the future. Hey, it can only get better, right, at that point. Right. Well, not, I mean, it's not like it was a bad book, right? But it's not... <laughs> so convincing. It's not, it's not like thrilling, riveting literature. It's yeah. the ideas that kind of plant and take root that are interesting. After you realize how it folds into, like, the later story, maybe. Like, we, we have yet right. to find out and kind of, you know, like, I'm only kind of an eighth of the way into the whole story. So... Right. You know, why should I expect it to all make perfect sense at this point? So that's kind of where I'm at when I when I look at it. And I'm also not that I'm jumping to defend the book, but um, I have been doing a lot of kind of other reading of short stories. I've, I've gotten a few collections from that time to get a sense of what was going on. Wait, and, you've been um, reading other stories? I've been reading other stories, but just by myself, Peter. But not talking that to people. That makes it worse. <laughs> got all the shame about it secret shame yeah yeah but yeah it's like it's consistent with other authors and their kind of packaging of shorter stories so maybe i'm a little bit immune to some of the nuance that 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 takes on relative to a more traditional novel um but yeah no i mean certainly all good points and uh and certainly i i'm looking forward to a little bit more cohesive of a story in the next book, which I think was written as a book and yeah. only has like two parts to it. So hopefully it holds together a lot stronger and, and flows nice. Yeah. I think that's the thing I'm probably having the hardest time getting over is like, if I view it as four short stories, right. It's, it's kind of easier to be like, yeah, it was, it was good. I enjoyed it. The stories themselves are interesting. Right. But like the, the overarching narrative is harder to track. So there we have it, folks. It's not the worst book we've ever read. <laughs> <laughs> Look, no, we had, it, we generally, got, we generally a good book. And, out, of, out of four and, and a half thumbs. <laughs> and we're all <laughs> looking forward to the next book and the next season of the podcast, I'm sure. Woo! <laughs> there it is. So there we have it, folks. Uh, general happiness and joy with the book. A few things to be desired that we're looking forward to growing with Isamov, maybe I should say, as he um, makes his way through his epic journey of writing his future novels uh, that we haven't read yet. So obviously they're already written. 
but we're going to read them in chronological order by date of publishing. And our next uh, adventure is a foray into Foundation and Empire. I am Jason, and I have been your host tonight with my fabulous co-hosts. Peter. Dan. And Brent. And thank you guys so much for coming on the podcast, by the way. It was my uh, pleasure. nice not just to hear myself talk all the time. Hopefully I, br- I, I made enough Dune references to carry my weight here. Yeah, absolutely. Never enough Dune references. So I'll just say uh, thank you again to all of our listeners for hanging with us. And we hope you enjoyed. And if you haven't listened to season one, there's... Uh, a ton more nuggets to enjoy. So I recommend that you go ahead and give us a listen and we hope you will join us again in season two, as we read foundation and empire, it will be myself, Jason, Peter, and Dan, and we look forward to it and hope you do too. Have a good night, everybody. Bye-bye. Good night. Good night, everybody.